This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer, and welcome to Keep the Faith, a weekly podcast in which we explore contemporary issues through the prism of Jewish law and tradition. The countdown has begun. Passover, Pesach, begins just one week from tonight. And so, for this week and next, I'm presenting encores of last year's two pre-Pesach episodes about the story of the Exodus, its basis in history, and why it's all so important for us, even today, nearly 3,500 years later. For a great many of us, I hope, there's a lot of work preparing for this festival. Homes need to be thoroughly cleaned, kitchen and dining areas especially so. Dishes, pots, pans, and utensils have to be switched out. Food pantries have to be restocked with often unreasonably overpriced kosher for Passover food. The various materials needed for the two sidarim, the two seders, have to be assembled. And all because Israel was enslaved in Egypt and God took them out of there following a series of increasingly disastrous plagues that beset Egypt. Even more important than celebrating Passover, though, is how this event defines who we are as a people and what it means to be God's, quote, kingdom of priests and holy nation, unquote. Leviticus chapter 19 tells us, quote, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall observe all my laws and all my rules to do them. I am the Lord, unquote. Because, quote, I the Lord am your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, unquote. We may not defraud anyone or steal from anyone or lie about anyone. It's why we must treat everyone as our equals, why we must feed the hungry and house the homeless and clothe the naked, why we must protect the environment. The Exodus is literally the heart and soul of who we are and why we are. The problem is, supposedly, there's nothing in history to support the story. It didn't happen. If there was no Exodus, then the laws the Torah bases on it aren't rooted in anything but the whims of an anonymous author or authors. Why should we observe laws based on a fictional event? And why do we have to go through all the painstaking work of preparing to celebrate that fictional event, as we're in the process of doing right now? Why do we even need a Passover Seder and a special ritual to mark a made-up story? And so, the topic for this week, and next, by the way, this is a two-parter, is putting the Exodus into the context of history. Let me state this bluntly. The Exodus is not a made-up story, scholarly dissertations to the contrary notwithstanding. It did happen, although it probably didn't happen exactly the way the Torah describes it. That's because the Torah's text wasn't written as history as we understand it. It was written by a sacred historian who viewed events through his special God-centered lenses. He sees the hand of God in all events. He isn't wrong in seeing things that way but it does color how he reports those events because he leaves out so much crucial information. We're told virtually nothing, for example, about the lives of the Israelites in Egypt from the time they arrive there until they're enslaved. And even then, the information we're given is woefully inadequate. His point is to tell us what God did, not what everyone else did. Egyptian history, meanwhile, never mentions the Exodus, for reasons I'll explain a bit later. But it does provide events over a 430-year period that are a perfect fit with the Torah's version, thereby also providing circumstantial proof 
for that version. That 430-year period begins with the story of Joseph and ends with Moses. The Exodus story rises or falls on the existence of these two people. Joseph, son of Jacob, is the first of his immediate family to arrive in Egypt. He arrives in chains as a slave, but he eventually rises to the position of viceroy, second only to Egypt's king. From that position, he manages to rescue Egypt from the ravages of a seven-year famine. Seven-year famine sounds like a fiction all by itself, I know, but such famines did actually happen in ancient Egypt. One such famine occurred during Egypt's third dynasty and is memorialized on a stone slab that was found near Aswan just over a 100 years ago. Jacob, also known as Israel, eventually follows his son, taking with him the rest of the family, who are called in the Torah, the sons of Israel. There, the Hebrews, as they were called by the Egyptians, live for the next 430 years. They start off there as welcome guests, but they end up as slaves. Near the end of the 430 years, Moses arrives on the scene. Raised by one of Pharaoh's daughters as her son, Moses, on God's instructions, announces a series of plagues that devastate Egypt. After the calamitous tenth plague, Egypt relents and allows Moses and his people to travel three days' time into the Egyptian desert, there to offer sacrifices and worship their god. No, I didn't mistake that. Contrary to popular belief, the Pharaoh didn't free the Hebrew slaves. He furloughed them for a week so that they could go into the desert to worship their god. Moses let Pharaoh think that's what they were doing. Pharaoh fully expected them to return after they completed their worship ceremony, which they never held, by the way, and never intended to hold. Pharaoh says as much to Moses following the tenth plague, quote, Rise up, depart from among my people, you and the children of Israel, and go worship the Lord as you said, unquote. So no, Pharaoh never told them they could leave Egypt forever. That's why he and his army chased them all the way to the Red Sea. Anyway, that Bikitsur, in brief, is the sacred historian's version of events, and it appears nowhere in the historical and archaeological records. Remove that God-centered lens, though, and there's much in Egyptian history to back up the basic story from start to finish. In order to find what's there, though, requires us to place these events into a period of Egyptian history during which they most likely occurred. If we don't know when something happened, we can't know where to look for proof that it did happen. The dating of the Exodus is the subject of so much debate among scholars, but I've never understood what their problem is. Dating the Exodus would seem to be the easiest matter to resolve because the Torah provides a big clue. It tells us that the Israelites were forcefully employed on massive building projects, and specifically the cities of Pitom and Ramses. We know when these two cities were built. They were built during the reign of Ramesses II, a pharaoh of the 13th century BCE. He himself said as much on a stone slab, a stele, on which he even boasts that Ramesses, the city bearing his name, was built by foreign slaves, at least some of whom were Semites. The slab also brags about his subjugation of the, quote, Asiatics, unquote, which was how the Egyptians often referred to Semites and others from the Canaan area. Please remember that we're Asians in origin, not Africans. Egypt is in Africa. The land of Israel is in Asia. 
I should also point out that scholarly critics of the biblical account are often quick to tell us that there's no evidence that Israelites built Egypt's pyramids, which, they say, disproves the Torah's account. Only the Torah never said anything about pyramid building. It only states that the Israelites were engaged in building Pitom and Ramses, which are far away from any pyramid. Location comes into play here, too. Traditionally, the kings of Egypt ruled from Thebes or Memphis, way to the south of Pitom and Ramses. The Torah's account, however, makes it imperative that the seat of government for Egypt at the time of the Exodus story had to be in the same area as those two cities. In fact, it had to be very near to the area in which the Israelites lived, namely Goshen in the Nile Delta region. That's because Moses has to be able to go back and forth from the palace to the Israelites without much trouble, and with very little travel time, especially as he was always on foot. A capital in the Nile Delta region, in fact, is a staple of the pharaohs of the 19th dynasty, the so-called Ramesseed era, when Pitom and Ramses were built. So dating the Exodus should be a no-brainer. It, it occurred, the Ramesseed era is when it most likely would have taken place. That's at the end of the story. Location is crucial to the beginning of the story as well, because the seat of Egyptian government also has to be in the Nile Delta region, if not virtually on the same spot. After all, the Torah tells us that Joseph and his Pharaoh settled the Israelites in Goshen, and Joseph, like Moses in his day, is able to travel quickly from Goshen to the government complex, so it had to be nearby. For the basic story to be true, therefore, we have to be able to trace our steps back 400 years from the time of Ramesses II and Merneptah, his son and successor who's the most likely candidate for the pharaoh of the Exodus. And then we have to find the Egyptian seat of government located in virtually the same spot as it was in Ramesses' day. And we also have to find conditions that would allow for a semi, Joseph, to rise to a position of great importance in Egypt's government. And guess what? we do find those conditions met. Tracing our way back four centuries, we come to a period in Egyptian history in which at least a portion of the country was ruled by the people the Egyptians called Asiatics, the people history erroneously but commonly calls the Hyksos. These interloper pharaohs made the Nile Delta their capital seat. As it turns out, the later Ramesseed capital was actually built on the site of the old Hyksos capital. Torah doesn't tell us that. History does. Placing Joseph within this period also answers a question raised by the basic story. If Joseph's actions saved Egypt from suffering during the seven years of famine, as the Torah claims, how could a new pharaoh arise, quote, who knew not Joseph, unquote? And how could Egypt have been so ungrateful as to enslave their savior's descendants? With the Hyksos as backdrop, the answer we find is that the Egyptian ruling classes, political and priestly, didn't want to know anything about Joseph or any other Asiatic who participated in the usurpation of native rule. And, as I'll discuss shortly, the native pharaohs who finally unseated these usurpers went a long way towards obliterating any trace of them from Egyptian records of all kinds. So now we know in what period to begin our search for proof. We start with the period of the so-called Ixos, and we end it sometime in the Ramesseed era, 
most likely during the reign of the pharaoh Renepta. At both ends, we find matters deserving of much more investigation than the existing archaeological evidence allows. For at the early end of this chain of years, we find a Semitic king of Egypt who very likely was the patriarch Jacob. You heard that correctly. There was a Semitic pharaoh named Jacob. We'll get back to that. At the other end, we find an Egypt in economic ruin, under siege from without by invaders from Lebanon, and from within by a breakdown in civil order with no army in sight, and in political turmoil because a usurper briefly seized Egypt's throne following the death of Renepta, all of which point to some giant catastrophe that had brought Egypt to its knees. The Egypt that existed when Joseph and his family must have arrived there is an Egypt in chaotic transition. The 12th dynasty had ended on or about 1785 BCE for the next 225 years until the rise of the pharaoh Ahmos and the start of the 18th dynasty in 1560 BCE. No one person held sway over the entire nation. Different pharaohs ruled different parts of Egypt including the Semitic pharaohs in the Nile Delta region. Into this power vacuum came the Hyksos. Somewhere around 1720 BCE, many so-called Asiatics apparently found life better in Egypt than in their own lands, perhaps because Egypt usually had food available, even in times of famine. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all lived through such famines, as the Torah tells us. Famines, it seems, were frequent back then. Most of these Asiatics came from the same general vicinity in Canaan as did the family of Jacob and Joseph, according to the Egyptologist Donald B. Redford. Says he, they came from, quote, no further north than the Lebanon range, no further south than the Judean highlands, unquote. It's here that we begin to understand the difficulties we encounter in trying to trace developments in Egyptian history. As the Egyptologist Sir Alan Gardner put it, at the start of the 18th dynasty, when the Hyksos were routed, quote, distortion and literary fiction become an established convention of Egyptian historical writing, unquote. The second problem is related to the first. Not only did the founders of the 18th dynasty resort to apparent distortions and falsehoods, they also took a nearly completely successful effort to destroy any records pertaining to these kings and their accomplishments. It's a surprise that we know as much as we do about them, which isn't all that much. It's because of this predilection for erasing uncomfortable history, for example, that we barely know the name of six of the Hyksos kings who reigned during this period, and even those names are subject to wide debate. It was into this world that Joseph was thrust when he was sold into slavery. The textual evidence suggests that Joseph was indeed a real person, although perhaps his saga in the Torah is not without its embellishments. The evidence also suggests, sometimes very strongly, that Joseph's story played itself out during the reign of the Hyksos. Missing from the Joseph saga, for example, are direct references to the many gods of Egypt, suggesting that in the circles in which Joseph traveled, these gods weren't very popular. One exception is in the mention of Joseph's father-in-law, who was priest to one of those gods. For the record, the Asiatics, in a shrewd political move, 
co-opted the identities of traditional Egyptian gods, attaching them to the gods of their own pantheon, which was something of a common practice for invaders in the ancient world. They also did something we'll come back to later, because it might have great relevance to our quest for proof that this story really happened. The Asiatics elevated to official cult status the Egyptian god Seth, who was best known to the native Egyptians, according to Gardner, as, quote, the murderer of the good god Osiris, but the Hyksos chose to ignore that regrettable aspect. Their version of Seth was certainly more Asiatic in character than the native original, bearing a distinct resemblance to the Semitic Baal, unquote. As I said, this elevation of Seth may have important ramifications during the Ramesid era, as you'll hear next week. The Hyksos also continued to worship the goddess Anat Astarte, goddess of war and goddess of love at the same time, and that also will have ramifications for the Ramesid era. Put another way, while they did nothing to hinder the worship of Egyptian gods by the Egyptians, the Hyksos showed a clear preference for their own gods by recreating an Egyptian god in the image of their main god, Baal, and they continued to celebrate Baal's consort, Anat Astarte. So did Ramses II, by the way, but we'll get to that when we get to him next week. There are other textual suggestions as well. For example, Joseph is sold into slavery for 20 shekels. We know that was the average price for a slave in those days because that price is recorded in the law code of the Babylonian king Hammurabi. His code wasn't known to anyone hundreds of years after the Exodus, and we only know about it because it was dug up some years ago in Persian, no less, far away from Egypt. At least then, contemporary source material is indicated here. Then there are the chariots. When Joseph's pharaoh appoints him to the post of Viceroy, he has the 30-something Hebrew boat ride in the chariot of his second-in-command, unquote. This is a very telling comment because the chariot was a Hyksos innovation. Location, as noted earlier, is also an indication. The Egypt of Joseph's saga, in other words, the Egypt of the Hyksos, is the Egypt of the Nile Delta. In addition, the land of Goshen, in which Jacob and his family settled, was a Hyksos enclave. At this point, here's where we stand. From 1674 BCE, when the reign of Salatus began, until 1223 BCE, and the death of Menephtah, the most likely pharaoh of the Exodus, 451 years passed. The Torah tells us that Joseph's family doesn't arrive in Egypt until 22 years after his arrival. Subtract 22 from 451, and you get 429 years from the time Jacob and his family, the sons of Israel, as the Torah now calls them, arrive in Egypt until the probable date of the Exodus, which takes place in the 430th year of their sojourn in Egypt. The Torah tells us that Israel lived in Egypt for 430 years, albeit not all of it in servitude. What follows now is, at best, a recreation based on existing evidence that's admittedly all too sparse. I present it here as a possibility that fits the facts that we do have, not as a fact itself. This is important because the prevailing wisdom among too many scholars is that there's no way to reconcile the biblical story with the available evidence. Regardless of whether what follows is fact or fancy, it does reconcile the Torah's version with the existing historical record, thereby establishing the possibility, at least, 
that there is historical truth to the story it tells. If the story, at least in its basic form, meaning before the sacred historian got to it, is true, then the people in the story are real people. It also means that there must have been an exodus of some kind because the Israelites end up in Canaan. Joseph is 17 years old when he's sold into slavery. By then, the Hyksos are well established in the Delta region, and one of them, Salatus, is serving as Pharaoh. At age 30, Joseph comes face to face with Salatus himself. He's so impressed with Joseph and the plan Joseph devised on the spur of the moment to save Egypt from the ravages of a seven-year famine that would follow seven years of plenty, that the king instantly appoints Joseph to the number two post in his kingdom. Seven years of plenty come, and the famine follows. Two years later, Joseph sends for his father and his family. That same year, Salatus dies, and a new pharaoh arises from among the Hyksos. According to most scholars, that pharaoh's name, in part, was Jacob. Surname is in dispute, but no one disputes the reading of Jacob, or Yaakov in Hebrew. This Jacob will rule Egypt for approximately 18 years. The Torah tells us our Jacob lived in Egypt for 70 years. In his 18th year, he dies. Says Gardiner, who, by the way, is no fan of the biblical narrative as anything but a fiction, quote, It is difficult to reject the accepted view that the patriarch Jacob is commemorated on a scarab of the period bearing the name of a Hyksos named Jacob there, unquote. Of course, we could put this similarity in names down to coincidence, if not for something in the Torah's account of Jacob's burial. The preparations for it and the huge and prestigious funeral party the Torah describes in Genesis chapter 50 don't make sense that Jacob was merely the father of Egypt's second in command. His was a state funeral on a grand scale. Based on the account of a pharaoh's burial by the ancient historian Diodorus of Sicily, the renowned biblical scholar Nahum Sarna said, quote, Jacob is apparently being accorded royal honors, unquote. Of course he was accorded royal honors. Jacob's funeral was the funeral of the king of Egypt. Joseph lives for another 54 years after his father's death. In art chronology, this would be the year 1580 BCE. That date is consistent with two curiosities found in the Torah's account of Joseph's death. First is that Joseph assures his brothers that God will remember them and bring them safely out of Egypt. Such an assurance would seem to be unnecessary given Joseph's exalted status and the goodwill he surely built up for himself and his family. The second is the simple sentence recording Joseph's death, quote, And Joseph died at the age of 110, and they embalmed him and placed him in a coffin in Egypt, unquote. Living 110 years, by the way, was considered the ideal lifespan in Egypt. There's no mention of a period of public mourning for Joseph, however, or of a state funeral. Unlike what they were clearly able to do for Jacob a half-century earlier, Joseph's family can't even take him out of Egypt to be buried in Canaan. Instead, Joseph must exact a pledge from his brothers that they'll take his bones with them when God delivers them from Egypt in the future. Clearly, something significant has occurred, and something has. History tells us that the Hyksos pharaoh and his allies are under full-scale attack by native Egyptian forces. Within two years, 
Pharaoh Kamos will push the war against the Hyksos even harder. Kamos' son Achmos will complete the route and begin Egypt's 18th dynasty. The story of Joseph in Egypt began with him leaving Canaan in chains, arriving in Egypt as a slave, later languishing unjustly as a prisoner, until finally he becomes a welcome member of society, second only to the Pharaoh himself. It ends with Joseph's family going from being Egypt's welcome guests to being its virtual prisoners. Soon they will become Egypt's slaves. For the story to come full circle, however, requires Joseph's descendants to leave Egypt as free people on their way back to Canaan. It also requires a man named Moses to appear, for him to be raised as a prince of Egypt, and for Egypt to be brought to its knees by a series of plagues, including the horrific Tenth Plague, the death of Egypt's firstborn. Before any of that can happen, though, secondary drama must first play itself out. While it doesn't involve Israel directly, or does it, it will have a profound impact on Egypt, and it will set the stage for all that's yet to come in the saga of Israel in Egypt. Here's a hint of what's to come. There really was a Moses. He probably was raised in the Egyptian court by a daughter of the pharaoh Ramesses II, and there's even an Egyptian document, an Egyptian document, not a Jewish sacred text, that describes the plagues and even speaks of a pharaoh dying by water of some kind. Hear the rest of the story, though. You'll need to tune in again next week. This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer. I do hope you come back for my next podcast, and I'd like to hear what you have to say about this or my other podcasts. Go to www.shammai.org, www.shammai.org, and email me, please. If you don't get the Jewish standard, but want to read my columns, go to the columns page of my website. The latest column is about why Vladimir Putin is the poster boy for the white Christian nationalists in this world, especially here, and why we need to be very afraid of them. Shabbat Shalom. Stay healthy. Keep wearing those N95 masks while outside, no matter who tells you otherwise and get fully vaccinated if you haven't done so as yet, including both the third and fourth booster shot. And above all, stay safe.